That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So uh, what is Donald Trump doing today? You know, I mean, after all, he's supposed to be in charge of all this stuff. Mike Pence is flying to Florida for a $25,000 plate fundraiser. Donald Trump is going to North Carolina to hold one of his Hitler rallies. It's, I mean, it just, it just doesn't, it's so weird. Congressman John Garamendi, this is from thehill.com. Congressman John Garamendi, written by Joe Concha, on Friday said that the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, that would be Anthony Fauci, I believe, was told to, quote, stand down, end quote, and not appear on five Sunday morning talk shows to discuss the coronaviruses. Garamendi told uh, MSNBC's Hallie Jackson that Anthony Fauci, yep, sure enough, was scheduled to do all five major Sunday talk shows, but it says Fauci canceled the appearance after... Vice President Pence took over the administration's response to the disease. I can repeat what he said. I was not muzzled. However, I was to go on the Sunday shows, talk shows, five of them. The vice president's office took over control of the situation and told me to stand down and not do those shows. You can draw your own conclusions, whether he's muzzled or not, says uh, Congressman Jaramendi. Um, yeah, you think? Jeff Tiedrich is tweeting about this. He's, he just, he's, so, he's so creative, this guy. He says, your pandemic crisis team, a demented game show host, that would be Trump, a vice president who caused an, an HIV epidemic in his home state, that would be Pence, a day-drunk economic advisor, that's Kudlow, the already overburdened chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, because why not, and an actual doctor, but he's not allowed to talk to the media. Right. Are we all reassured here? Excuse me, somehow I think not. On the line with us is Lori Garrett, former senior fellow for Global Health, the Council on Foreign Relations, Pulitzer Prize winning science writer and author of three books, including The Coming Plague, a book that I read some years ago that really woke me up and provoked me to invite Lori on our show multiple times over the years. Lori, welcome back. Hi, Tom. You've been singing this song for decades. You understand what's going on here. I have so much respect for you and the kind of perspective you bring to this. I'm curious your thoughts on how this administration is handling this, not necessarily the political attack kind of stuff, although it seems crazy that Health and Human Services would send a group of social workers whose main job is separating children from their parents at the border 
to California to meet a plane filled with people who just came off a, a cruise ship where there was a, a virus and 14 of those people are known to be infected. Your thoughts, and again, correct me if you think I'm wrong or being hysterical here, seems to be, or probably is, since this Air Force base was 10 miles from the town where this woman who's in the hospital now got sick, and there's no known way that she got it. It seems to me like one, maybe one of these people that HHS sent in there you know, went shopping in town, touched a door handle. She comes along, she touches the same door handle, and boom, now she's in the hospital. Does that make sense? Well, Tom, let me step back for a minute. You know, a month ago, our number one narrative was attacking China because Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party did, in fact, cover up the full extent of their Wuhan epidemic. And we are facing this crisis in the world because the Chinese Communist Party leadership put party loyalty to the Communist Party above stopping an epidemic and saving lives. Now we have Mulvaney and Pompeo and the CPAC meeting all saying, and Fox News ranting, echoing the voice of Rush Limbaugh, all saying this is a hoax. The word is hoax. And Mulvaney went further to say, the Democrats and the liberal media have run out of things to attack the president for because they lost on impeachment and they lost on the Mueller report. So now they're creating an epidemic hoax and attacking the competence of the administration. Now, oh which is worse? Which is worse? The Communist Party politicizing the outbreak in Wuhan and imperiling the whole world, or the Republican Party backing a president who is absolutely insistent that there's nothing to worry about here? There's nothing behind the curtain, folks. America is somehow invulnerable to something that is threatening the whole rest of the world. The incompetence and the nightmare of this is staggering. Politics has no place in an epidemic. I don't care whether it's communist politics or Republican politics. Get it off the shelf. We need competence and we need to save lives. Yeah, yeah. Mick Mulvaney at his uh, CPAC speech actually said they're hyping this to bring down the president. This is crazy. So to my theory about community transmission and this uh, California patient, your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not in the middle of that investigation, of course, so I don't want to second-guess anything that the California investigators are coming up with. Hmm. There obviously was community transmission, and it does seem highly coincident, at least, that the folks that had come from the Princess Cruise Liner were just 10 miles from the site of this index case. It would be cavalier to ignore that possibility, is the way I would put it. Okay. Can you just speak to, you use the phrase community transmission, and, you know, most of us are not public health experts like you are. It's not a phrase that I think most people have heard before, and they're just starting to hear now. What does that mean? So there's two different key dynamics going on in this epidemic as it becomes a pandemic. I would argue it already is a pandemic. Yes. One dynamic is cases basically seeding from the source, meaning individuals that are traveling from China or have been in China bringing a case, an isolated case, to some place that doesn't have any circulation of the virus. So that is what we were seeing, you know, maybe 10, 15 days ago, as most of the world dynamic outside of China. But now what we're seeing all over the world is spread within communities where it no longer has any connection to China at all. And in fact, in some of the outbreaks, there's no detectable original source 
in any way, as far back as you can trace it, connected to China. Right, this happened in Italy too, right? It's not exactly proven, but it does appear that it all started with a business meeting that an individual took over lunch with another individual in Milan, and over the course of a lunch conversation, the second guest at the table had been in China. A whole month passed incubating virus before then the second individual goes into a hospital outside Milan, and then it explodes inside the hospital due to a lack of appropriate infection control. And I think now this is the real alarm button, and rather than dwell on politics, I want to save lives here, Tom. Mm -hmm. So here's the alarm button I would like to push right now. To everybody who is listening to this show, who is a health practitioner, whether you're a dentist, you write prescriptions, you're a nurse, a doctor, you administer a hospital, whatever your role may be, you need to make sure that your entire staff is not only trained in proper infection control, but from now on assumes anybody coming into your office, into your practice, into your hospital might be infected. And that means you have to up your game on your infection control because what we're seeing all over the world is that the real kind of explosions of cases happens inside of medical facilities because doctors and nurses have to be up close and personal with patients. But in routine practice, you don't wear PPEs. In routine practice, you don't wear the super heavy-duty surgical masks. In routine practice, you don't wear two pairs of latex gloves. And in routine practice, you don't meet your patients wearing a surgical gown. But Everybody, practices that put you in close contact with patients, you need now to train your staff. You don't know. You're not going to see a patient with a big coronavirus stand on your face. You need to be careful. I'm on book tour last week and this week. I'm leaving for Chicago tomorrow. And last week I was signing books in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Seattle. I know that my flight from Los Angeles to San Francisco, I don't want to name the airline, but there were a fairly large number of people, maybe 15 or 20 people, who had come off a flight from Japan and transferred onto this flight. I don't know if I should be worried about that or not. I'm guessing that my flight from San Francisco back to Portland or up to Seattle probably had people who were connecting on international flights. With the SARS epidemic, it seemed like airports and hotels were one of the major vectors. What should people do? What should I do as I get on an airplane tomorrow morning to keep myself safe and keep people around me safe? Yes, I do a lot of travel as well. And I, you can imagine how many people call me to say, you know, my son is about to go to fill in the country. Should right. they go? Right. So here's my advice that I've been giving to everybody. First, there's the just pain in the neck aspect, which is flights are getting canceled. Countries are closing airports. So when you book a flight, be sure you get flight insurance now so that you don't get stiffed with the bill and you have a possibility of changing your flight Mm. Um, because there are going to be a lot of disruptions now in the entire travel industry. As for safety, we have no evidence so far of transmission within North America on flight routes. But isn't that because we only have 400 test kits in the whole country? Well, that's a lot of problem, Tom, and it's huge. Yeah. You know, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, even Switzerland have tested thousands of people. And everywhere they test, they end up finding cases, maybe not 
huge numbers, maybe one here and one there. The point is, there's going to be transmission. Yeah, Lori, your phone is breaking well, up. I'm sitting still. Oh, okay. Who knows? Well, it's just your cell provider then. Anyhow, this continue. This our third world telephone. Yeah. So, in summary, what do we do? Everybody to take this very seriously. Do not count on to be there for you. Meanwhile, teach your children infection control. Your mm. office staff infection control. Again, Lori, I'm sorry. I'm just going to wrap this, but Lori Garrett, I know you can hear me. Thank you so much for being with us. I have so much respect for you and for the work that you've done over the years and for the voice of sanity you bring to this, and I'm grateful that you dropped by. Thank you. Thank you, and I commend your book, The Coming Plague, and all of your books to everybody who's watching. They're really, really worth checking out. Lori Garrett's website is L-A-U-R-I-E Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T dot com, and you can tweet her at uh, Lori underscore Garrett. That's her Twitter handle, so check it out. Her writing is spectacular. That book, The Coming Plague, when I read that, I think it was you know well over a decade, maybe even two decades ago. I don't want to say it scared me. What it did is it gave me a, an extraordinary understanding that I didn't have prior to that of basically how epidemics happen, specifically at a granular level. Kim in Minneapolis. Hey, Kim, what's up? I am amazed at the amount of people who don't understand a problem that we have. It's population. And the studies have been done, and what we're experiencing around the world is part of the problem. We cannot continue to add an infinite number of people to a finite source, which is the Earth. We're using the resources. We're putting to death all kinds of the Afro-Palestine, the extinction of animals and species. And this coronavirus is probably somewhat of nature's culling of the herd, as you were, to take out some people because there's too many and we just can't handle the amount well, of people. at the very least, it's an indication that the human population has grown so large that we're reaching into areas where humans have never been before, pulling out animals, killing them and eating them. This is how SARS started. This is how, well, actually MERS uh, seems to have jumped to camels. And this is how Ebola started. And several of those philo uh, or, you know, the thread-like viruses, I forget the actual scientific name. But yeah, Kim, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, let's just look at the numbers. When Jesus was walking the earth, there were a quarter million people in the entire planet. We were on all five continents, but there was a quarter million people. In 1800, the year that Thomas Jefferson was sworn in as president, we hit one billion people for the first time in the history of the world. So 600,000 years of human history gets us to 1 billion people in 1800. The second billion only took 130 years. The year Franklin Roosevelt was sworn in in 1932, we hit 2 billion people. 2 billion. Population of the United States was only in the neighborhood of 100 million. 30 years later, when John Kennedy was sworn in, we hit our third billion. So now we're adding a billion in 30 years rather than 130 years. John Kennedy sworn in in 1960. We're at 3 billion. The next 4 billion took only 14 years, 1974. 5 billion took only 13 years, 1987. 6 billion took only 12 years, 1999. And now we're well into 7 billion people. It has slowed down in the 2010s. Population growth has slowed down. Some of that is due to war. Some of it is due to disease. A lot of it is due to the economic stress that you know, Americans are not even having families now because everybody's in debt because of Reaganomics. But, you know, I get your point and I agree. And I think, frankly, the non-fossil fuel carrying capacity of this planet is probably a billion people at the most. 
what it's going to take to get us there. You know, yeah, I've read Malthus, <laughs> you know, and, and he doesn't say, you know, it's all, oh, you know, it's a giant crest. He talks about these cycles that have to do with food and, and famine and, and things like that and population. And there's, there's a lot to it. We do have an overpopulation problem, not so much in the United States, but around the planet. And the best way to solve this, by the way, the best way to reduce the growth rate of our population is to educate women and girls and give them political power in countries where they don't have it. And to stop people like those, those uh, you know, right-wing crazies men in the United States who think that women and girls, you know, the, the girls shouldn't even be going to school. I mean, you've got, you've got prominent Republicans saying that, that women should never been, have been given the vote, should not have any say over their bodies. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Mike Pence shutting down Planned Parenthood in Indiana when it was the only place you could get tested for HIV, and then he had an HIV explosion. This is how stupid these people are. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? I wanted to comment on the coronavirus topic. You had a guest on, I forget her name. Dr. Wen. She said, ah, Dr. Wen, yeah. She said we should give Trump administration fair and balanced critique. But I just want to say why it's difficult for me to do that, even though I appreciate where she's coming from. Richard Blumenthal, he said he attended a classified briefing, and he said that all Americans should have access to that information. And at the time, I was like, wow, that's really unusual for a senator to say that. But then I got to thinking about it. And look, all this information is probably related to how woefully unprepared we are for something like this, okay? And how the and administration I, has had four months advance notice and they're not stocking up on test kits, they're not stocking up on respirators, they're not stocking up on these personal protection suits. They've been doing nothing. They've been sitting around and complaining about Democrats and Trump has been tweeting Kofefi. The classified nature of the briefing probably had nothing to do with lethality. Of no, the, no, they the classify briefings that are embarrassing to the Trump administration, period, full stop. They've done it repeatedly. Ever since this crisis popped up, I thought about Trump's briefing to the U.N., where he um, mistakenly said Nambia. He called a country in Africa Nambia, you know, which there is. Namibia right? is what he meant, yeah. Well, well, in Zambia, you know, people speculated Zambia, maybe okay. he just, you know, uh, Zambia and Namibia, he, he combined. Well, here's the thing. If you look at history, that was Sudvest Africa. All right. This is where the German army in Imperial, this was back during the early 20th century right. in Imperial uh, Germany. This is where modern day virology, vaccinology, all the corporate efforts started. It started with the German military. The, the question what the Germans had is why is of what they call the render pest? Why is the render pest killing cattle and simultaneously k- killing native Africans but not Germans? Right, that was the big question, and all that evolved into the twenty and twenty first century things that Trump has decided to defund. Right? Wow. And. Well, yeah, and, and it's just, you know, a little history and, and why I'm, a, I'm really worried, concerned about this. I served with two guys that are remarkable in my mind. One, he died within 36 hours after contracting Korean hemorrhagic fever. He was at 20, 23 years old. And uh, the doctors were bragging about, you know, keeping him alive, I guess, 36 hours. They were bragging about keeping him alive 36 hours. The other special forces guy I worked with who contracted malaria, he, he could bench press like 300 pounds after he was treated for malaria and, and you know, um, brought back to, to optimal 
health, he couldn't even do 10 push-ups. They had to put him out yeah. of the military because he would be debilitated. Yeah, for the I've rest seen of that. I've, I've known, I've had friends who got malaria and it's, it, it is crippling for a while. We got to keep a focus on this. Trump, what he's done is completely debilitated the United States' ability to respond to any sort of crisis like this complex and multifaceted. Yeah, I'm with you, and that's that's my concern and that's my complaint. Thank you. Um, the fact that the the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar sent people in street clothes into you know to meet people who were infected with a virus. And then those people just wandered out into their community. This has me concerned. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. I mean, everybody in that town where that woman lived needs to be tested. And I, you know, I'm guessing that they're cranking up the test kits as fast as they can, but it seems a little too little too late. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey friends, wanted to give you the latest news about my good friend Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way. He's now out with a great new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out The Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives like Maxine Waters, Mark Bocan, Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump. Plus his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House Congress and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in our country, so I'm so glad he's still out there on the left and stronger than ever. I encourage you to join me by subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, search for the Bill Press pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press pod. Check out Bill's new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Health Justice Now, Single Payer and What Comes Next by Timothy Faust. And this is from the introduction. A secret scream rings through America. It rings down the sterile fluorescent hallways of our hospitals. It rings over our rural towns and our native reservations. It rings through our prisons, the bellies of our great cities. It rings in our farms, in our fields, our streets, and our sewers, our bodies, and our blood. And we are cursed to never hear it clearly until, at last, we realize it has been our own mouth screaming and we are lost. A child born today inherits, in that secret, a new American squalor. The skeletal remains of the American cities, the bleached bones of the American suburbs. This secret is a birthright of continual exploitation, pumped for labor and drained of cash and then punished for the resulting suffering. Punished for being hungry, punished for being sick, punished for being pregnant, punished for being poor, punished for being black or brown, punished for being queer, for being unlucky, for being. At the base of that suffering is lodged a little truth, like a knot in the stomach. In America, sickness makes you poor, and poorness makes you sick. This is a book about that relationship and why it happens and why it's unnecessary and what we can do to fix it. The cosmic whirling of God's great slot machine has not determined that some people are fated to suffer while others flourish. We have the resources to take care of everyone and yet we refuse to do so. Your medical debt and medical bills are unnecessary but we have chosen to make them necessary. These are structural problems with structural causes, and many of them share roots in how we pay for health care. This is a book about health care and health finance. They are different. Health care is anything that helps you stay safe and healthy. It's a kind of freedom from and within your own body. 
health finance is the method by which we as a country pay for that freedom and by which we decide who gets to have it and who doesn't. Health care is more than what happens to you in the hospital. Health care is whether your home makes you sick, or your food makes you sick, or your environment makes you sick, or whether you have enough money to afford the things that keep you healthy. In America, the structure of corporate health care has convinced us that some people deserve health care and some people don't. This is a book about that corporate health finance, about private insurance and private insurers. For half a century, they've convinced us that they're the only things that keep us or could ever keep us from the utter financial ruination of illness. They've sold us different inadequate insurance plans and persuaded us that this is a form of great liberty while chipping away at our freedoms for profit and holding our bodies and our children's bodies hostage. This is a book about single-payer health care, a health finance model in which we pool our abundant collective resources to provide health care to all people. It is a common model across the world. As we will discuss in this book, we have the potential not just to enact a single-payer program in America, but to build the greatest health care program among any so-called developed democracy. Here is my profession of faith. I believe beyond any doubt that single-payer is demonstrably sound and imminently feasible. I believe a properly ambitious and well-structured single-payer program will do more than any other American social program of this generation to soothe the burns, to resuscitate the spirit, to nourish the moral will of the American people. I believe it will loosen the loathsome manacles of American health finance, an exploitative institution that profits by plundering from us our own bodily autonomy and that anchors the larger exploitation that holds those whom we love as captive leverage to guarantee our servitude to abusive employers or domestic partners, to those who seek to dominate us both in the office and in the hospital. I believe this nation owes its people, whose labor has created its rich banquet, the safety and agency of health care. I believe this health care is greater in scope than that which happens upon an operating table. I believe that housing, food, income, and more, the components of basic human dignity, are health care. And I believe our work is that of striving toward justice for all people. And I therefore believe, I have to believe, that single-payer health care is our moral imperative. Single-payer is our tool. Single-payer is our weapon. Single-payer is our first step. But single-payer on its own is not the goal. This book is about health justice. Healthcare is personal, so I want to start this book personally by introducing two friends of mine, Steve Way and Kyle Kolick. They're two guys about my age, I'm 30, who live in North New Jersey. They're sweet, gentle people and probably the most charismatic pair of friends I've met in my entire life. They make me laugh until my face hurts and we like watching pro wrestling together. They're also being utterly broken by our American healthcare system and it's keeping them from living their lives. Steve has muscular dystrophy. The muscle and tissues that hold his body together are eating themselves. He's doing pretty good, all things considered. He beat his original life expectancy of 18 and now probably has a long life ahead of him. Steve needs a wheelchair to move and a ventilator to help him breathe. The book, Health Justice Now, Timothy Faust. I want to just play two clips back to back, just like to inform you, as it were. The first is John Kennedy, and the second is a clip from the 60 Minutes interview that Mike Bloomberg retweeted of Bernie Sanders. 
So here's, first of all, John Kennedy talking about a national health care program. And this is two minutes. Here it is. And what they do in England is entirely different. In England, the entire cost of medicine for people of all ages, all of it, doctors, the choice of doctors, hospitals. He's pitching the single time payer. The born to the time you die are included in a government program. But what we're talking about is entirely different. And I hope that while he's here, he and Dr. Spock and others who have joined us will come to see what we're trying to do. He's talking about Medicare for all. What we are now talking about doing, most of the countries of Europe did years ago. The British did it 30 years ago. John Kennedy pitching Medicare for all. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. And then those who say that this should be left to private effort. In those hospitals in New Jersey where the doctors said they wouldn't treat anyone who paid their hospital bills through Social Security, those hospitals and every other new hospital, the American people, all of us, contribute one half, one or two thirds for every new hospital in the national government. We pay 55% of all the research done. We help Socialism. young men become doctors. We are concerned with the progress of this country. And those who say that what we are now talking about spoils our great pioneer heritage should remember that the West was settled with two great actions by the national government. One, in President Lincoln's administration, when he gave a homestead to everyone who went west, and in 1862, he set aside government property to build our land-grant colleges. This cooperation between an alert and progressive citizenry and a progressive government is what has made this country great, and we shall continue as long as we have the opportunity to do so. That's Jack Kennedy calling for a single-payer national health care system, Medicare for all. This is the clip from 60 Minutes that Mike Bloomberg tweeted out. Okay, and I had a caller earlier going, I saw Bernie on 60 Minutes. Oh, my God, he's a socialist. He's praising Castro. Here's the actual clip. This is from 60 Minutes. This is, it speaks for itself. Back in the 1980s, Sanders had some positive things to say about the former Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. And he educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right. And we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you want to, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. So, really, you're going to tell me that that's going to cause Bernie Sanders not to get elected? Because he's saying, he's saying the same stuff that Jack Kennedy is saying? That Jack Kennedy campaigned on? Really? Honest to God? Amazing. Ro Khanna was tweeting, Is anyone else outraged that other industrialized nations are paying a fraction of what we pay for prescription drugs? And he tweeted a chart. Uh, Humira Pen, for example, for arthritis. 
in the United Kingdom and in England, they pay one-fifth what we pay here, 19%. In Germany, they pay uh, one-third of what we pay here. In Switzerland, it's 27% of what we pay here. In South Africa, they only pay 16% of what we pay here. Keytruda, a drug for cancer, 7% in South Africa. In other words, it costs, if it costs $100 here, it costs $7 in South Africa. Herceptin for breast cancer. If it costs $100 here, it costs $21 in, uh, in South Africa, $22 in Switzerland, $23 in Germany. It's crazy. And then Rokana goes on to say, every drug approved by the FDA from 2010 to 2016, every single one was developed with publicly funded National Institutes of Health Research. Mind-boggling. Anyhow, Scott in Westwood, Kansas, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Scott, what's up? So I want to pitch a JFK speech to you. Have you ever seen his speech in Madison Square Garden where he argues for single payer? Yes. I don't have it on my 360, but I've got a clip of it. Yes. Yes, I think you should play that on your program to inform your listeners like you do FDR speech. Yeah, it's a good suggestion. I'm looking for uh, it as we speak. Want... Do not affect the freedom of choice. You can go to any doctor you want. The doctor and you work out your arrangements with him. We talk about his hospital all. bills. All these arguments were made against Social Security at the time of Franklin Roosevelt. They're made today. And then other people say, uh, why doesn't the government mind its own business? What is the government's business is the question. This bill serves the public interest. It, it involves the government because it involves the public welfare. The Constitution of the United States did not make the President or the Congress powerless. It gave them definite responsibilities to advance the general welfare, and that is what we're attempting to do. This is Jack Kennedy calling for a national health care system. I that this bill will sap the individual self-reliance of Americans. I can't imagine anything worse or anything better to sap someone's self-reliance than to be sick, alone, broke, or to a save for a lifetime and put it out in a week, two weeks, a month, two months. This argument that the government should stay out, that it saps our pioneer stock. I used to hear that argument. It's a brilliant speech, and here's, that's JFK arguing for Medicare for All. And LBJ, when he passed Medicare on a limited basis with the expectation that eventually it would expand to everybody. In fact, eventually, LBJ was expecting within the next decade... He said, do it for Jack. Right? Do it for Jack. Deborah in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Deborah, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. I just want to talk about Medicare and the public option. Mm -hmm. And I'm really sick and tired of Bernie getting attacked with how will you pay for Medicare when we all know that it's cheaper. Yeah. We know that it's cheaper than private insurance. And the real question is what are we going to do with all the money that we save? Even Yale came out with a study showing it's cheaper. The, the Koch fact. brothers did a study that found it was cheaper. You know, right? Yes. So my question to you is the establishment candidates are banking on the public option or Medicare for all who want it. My question is, if Obamacare, which includes pre-existing conditions, protection, gets defeated in court and the public option never made it into fruition in the first place, who will stop the Republicans from picking it apart over and over again? Will the health care system ever be fixed? Do they even want it fixed? 
Well, the Republicans don't want it fixed. That's why you've got 20-some-odd, as I recall, Republican governors who are suing to overturn Obamacare. And that lawsuit has now reached the Supreme Court, and they were supposed to hear the arguments this spring. And they announced, uh, John Roberts announced, and I think this was just, you know, throwing a bone to the Republicans, that they will actually not hear the arguments until next spring so that it will not be in the election, right? In other words, so that people won't realize that Donald Trump and 20-some-odd Republican governors are actually suing at the Supreme Court to take down Obamacare, mm -hmm. which would eliminate that restriction on pre-existing conditions, which means that if the Supreme Court rules in favor of these Republican governors and Donald Trump, then your health insurance company will be able to start saying to you if you get sick, oh, we're not going to pay for that because that was a pre-existing condition. You had that diabetes before you got your policy with us, and so we're not going to cover it. Or you smoked when you were a teenager, and so when you get lung cancer, we're not going to cover that. Or you took an acne medication when you were a kid, and now you've got leukemia. We see that you know, there's an association. That's a pre-existing condition. And they used to nail about half of all Americans who would make claims, and they would say, no, you you know, we don't have to pay for that because it's a pre-existing condition. It would also do away with the lifetime caps. My wife almost hit her lifetime cap on our policy that we had through oh our God. company when she had breast cancer and got a letter from the insurance company saying, you know, another hundred grand and you're out and no more insurance and then you're uninsurable and we'll go back to that i mean these are not just the bad old days i mean this is just terrible and then uh, of Wait. course there'll be no limit on how much profit that they can make right now health insurance mm -hmm. companies the, the big ones are limited to a 15 percent profit the small ones to 20 percent profit and of course medicare makes no profit at all it, its overhead is three to four percent right. so we will go back to that, and, and it's all going to depend on the election, Deborah. I mean, you know, we've got to take back the Senate, and we've got to take it back in a big way. And there's a bunch of vulnerable Republicans this time. Over 20 Republicans mm -hmm. are running for re-election in the Senate in this cycle. So we've got to take back the Senate, and we've got to keep control of the House and, and increase our majority in the House, although there's not a filibuster in the House. So it's not, you know, the majority part is not all that critical. But And we've got to take the White House. Without those three things... If the Supreme Court rules as they, I would say, almost certainly will, particularly given that Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Neil Gorsuch are on the court, yeah, now yeah. it's going to be ugly. It's going to be real ugly. And so it's what another reason think, to vote. What do you think about Medicare for all who want it? What do you think the holes are in that? The hole is, uh, the, the big hole is that it allows the private for-profit insurance companies to still take a large bite out of the market. The larger your, and, and they can do it selectively, they can decide who they're going to insure. So they'll insure the healthy people, which means that the Medicare option, the Medicare portion will be, you know, the government will be dealing with the sicker people. And so the for-profit insurance companies will end up skimming the cream off and, you know, younger people, healthier people. This is exactly what is happening. In 2005, uh, George W. Bush and the Republicans passed legislation called Medicare Part C, which allowed for privatized Medicare. And uh, it's called Medicare Advantage. And on these privatized Medicare plans, um, they they have all you know they're filled with gotchas you know if you're out of network you've got to pay if you you know if you get uh, certain kinds of illnesses you get you, you're not covered if you you know they it's it's a there's a whole bunch of gotchas in Medicare Advantage mm -hmm. and but they aggressively sell this to people who just turned 65 because you know most people don't start getting sick and toward end of life weakness essentially until they're in their 70s or even their late 70s so the Medicare Advantage people are you know they're skimming off the top they're being reimbursed by Medicare. 
Plus, the people are paying premiums to them. They're making a huge amount of profit, these companies, particularly United Healthcare through AARP. And AARP is making a fortune on this stuff. And now they have almost a third of all people over 65 are on Medicare Advantage, which is making it harder for Medicare to survive because Medicare Advantage will get rid of you when you get sick, you know, and, and kick you back onto regular Medicare. So, you know, regular Medicare is ending up with the sickest people. And the same thing would happen in the market for people under 65 if we allow the private health insurance companies to continue to exist, essentially, while you also have the public option. That's, that's the danger. That public option, it's a great first step, but it also will you know, has the potential to really harm Medicare over the long term. And the health insurance companies will game it to do exactly that, just like they're doing with Medicare, you know, for people over 65 right now. So uh, why isn't anybody calling that out, though? Why isn't anybody on the stage calling that I out? I believe Elizabeth that? Warren pointed that out when Buttigieg was, you know, when she was criticizing Buttigieg's, you know, Medicare for whoever wants it. I believe that she made that point. Maybe not as long winded as I did, but, you know, I think she made that point. But that's the situation. Deborah, I got to move along, but thank you for thank the call. You. It's great to hear from you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So when you look in the mirror, do you see wrinkles around your eyes, crow's feet, a large under eye bags? Would you rather not see them? Imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? Try it. You won't have to imagine anymore. You'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will even know you're using it. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. Our for-profit health insurance and healthcare delivery systems from for-profit hospitals that are now turning into giant chains and monopolies, which is documented in my next book, The Hidden History of Monopoly and the Death of the American Dream. These for-profit health insurance companies that are basically banks, people running them basically banksters. The story of this guy in Florida who thought he had coronavirus because he'd just come back from China and he had a bad cold. He goes to the hospital to get tested. He gets a test. He gets home. He's got a $3,200 bill in the mail. And there's a note on there that this does not yet include all charges, right? Apparently the doctor's bill hasn't been added to it yet. And his copay was like, you know, five grand. So he has to pay the 3,200 bucks to get tested. How many people are going to go to the hospital or even their doctor's office to get tested when they get the symptoms of a cold and are wondering, is this the coronavirus? When they're looking at a $3,000 bill, it's, it's, it's insane. How did we get here? Wendell Potter used to be an executive with one of the big five, I believe it was Adna, one of the big five insurance companies, health insurance companies, these banksters. He figured out what he was doing was wrong and left the business and has been a whistleblower ever since, has, has written a brilliant book about it. He is the president now of Business for Medicare for All. The website is business4for-medicare4for-all.org. You can tweet him at Wendell Potter. Wendell, welcome back to the program. And remind me of the title of your book. Deadly Spin is the name of the book. Deadly Spin. And, and I worked for two big insurance companies over the course of 20 years, Humana and Cigna. So I know how these companies operate. Okay, so knowing how these companies operate, 
what kind of response can we expect, those of us who have private health insurance with one of these big health insurance companies, if we get symptoms and we're worried that it might be coronavirus? What do we do? What, how is this going to play out? I think very chaotically. And you're exactly right. People are afraid to go to the doctor, go to the ER, because they know they're very vulnerable to having a big bill come in, even if they have health insurance. And I saw this coming. One of the reasons I left my job is because I was expected to be a cheerleader for a trend in the industry that has gotten to where we are right now, and that is to push every last one of us into a high deductible plan. The consequence of that is that not only do we still have almost 30 million people in this country who don't have health insurance, we have twice that many who are now underinsured. That means their deductibles are so high, they have to pay so much out of their own pocket before their coverage kicks in, that people are not getting the care that they need already. So now as we have the very real possibility of having a real epidemic in this country, people needing and should be going to the doctor to get tested and to get care, afraid to do it because they're afraid of getting one of these big bills in the mail. Influenza has a fatality rate of 0.1%. Our head of the Department of Homeland Security was being interrogated in front of Congress, and he said he thought it was identical to that of the coronavirus, 2%. He was, of course, wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. But he's the guy in charge of Homeland Security who's supposed to protect us. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> Anyhow, what that means is that one out of every thousand people who gets the flu dies from it. One out of every thousand. Mm -hmm. And the health insurance system of this country has been dealing with that for years. 35,000 people a year die, which probably means a couple hundred thousand people every year end up on respirators or end up hospitalized and some small percentage of them die. But, you know, they end up in bad shape. The coronavirus is 2.3% from what we know so far. It's probably not quite that bad because there's probably a lot of undiagnosed cases that it's being compared against. But let's say it's 2%. That means out of every hundred people, Keep in mind, one out of a thousand dies of the flu. This would be two out of every hundred people will die from the coronavirus, which means instead of out of a thousand people, there being, you know, two or three people who need hospital care and respirators and things like that, it's going to be more like seven or eight out of every hundred or 70 or 80 out of every thousand. How does our system deal with this? I think our system is very ill-equipped to deal with this. For a lot of reasons. Uh, not only do we have a health insurance system that is just a profit-making operation and not caring how many people have coverage and how many people are underinsured, you've got that, but you've also got on the delivery side profit motivation that has led to a lot, many, many, many rural hospitals closing in recent years, as well as safety net hospitals. Like here in Philadelphia, where I live, one of the largest safety net hospitals that have been around for decades generations has closed because it was owned by a hedge fund team or a company. And so it was profit-taking. And here, here we are. What's the a safety net hospital, that, Wendell? Is that a, a hospital that kind of fills in the cracks of the rest of the healthcare system is. around it? It is. It is a hospital that is available to meet the needs of the community, regardless of insurance status, mm. uh, and treats everybody in the community. But they are especially available to people who are on Medicaid and who just don't have insurance. And we're seeing them disappear across the country as we have seen rural hospitals disappear. So people who, are, who live in small communities are now finding that they have to drive a long way to get the care that they need and are less likely to, to seek the care that they need. The other thing is that as we have been obsessed with making money in health care, we've not been investing in public health. It's estimated that 
three cents of every dollar that we spend on health care, only three cents goes to public health and our public health infrastructure. And I've talked to some public health officials who think that's even an overstatement. So we have such a dysfunctional and fractured healthcare system that if this becomes a real epidemic, we will see the consequences of just failing to really have a healthcare system and a healthcare infrastructure that we really need. Remarkable. So what should we be doing, Wendell Potter? I mean, you've been in, you know, a senior executive in two major health insurance companies. You know how health insurance works in this country. And by extension, you know how our healthcare system works. I, I know that you've done your research on other countries and how healthcare is done in Europe and Mexico and Canada and all over. What is the optimal system to make America resilient health-wise to things like a coronavirus epidemic? What do we need to do? And is it too late to do any of them quickly? Well, it's too late to do some of, you know, the ultimate solution is to move to a system in which we improve and expand the Medicare program to cover everybody. It's a program that's been around now for more than half a century and meets the needs of the oldest in our society and does it much more efficiently than private insurance companies do. And it's also secure. You can't lose it like you can a private insurance plan. So that's the ultimate solution. We need to look also to other countries to see what works well there. But again, we've got this program in place that just needs to be improved and expanded to cover everybody. This program being Medicare. That program being Medicare. It would be a much easier transition to get everyone into that than it would be to get everyone enrolled or a lot of people enrolled in the Obamacare plans because of the enormous complexity of dealing with multiple insurance companies. So it would be a much easier transition. So the real simple thing is to do, in my mind, is to do two steps, and I'd like you to reality check this for me. Step number one, we pass federal legislation that says there's no longer a 20% copay with Medicare. Medicare covers 100% of your expenses, no deductibles, no copays, number one. Number two, the eligibility age for Medicare is dropped from 65 to birth. Yeah, that's exactly right. You may do it over two or three years to get from 65 to birth, but that's exactly what we need to do. Maybe you're working at both ends of the age spectrum, but we can do that and we can get there in a relatively short period of time. And you're right, getting rid of the deductibles in the basic Medicare program is absolutely essential, and it is something that both the bills in the House and Senate, in the Senate sponsored by Bernie Sanders and the House by Pramila Jayapal, that would do exactly that. It would improve the basic Medicare program to right. eliminate those deductibles. And again, as we were talking, it is, though, it is that out-of-pocket requirement that is keeping so many people from getting the care that they need when they need it. Right. Remarkable. So... I guess it's just a matter of political will, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. It's a matter of political will. And our politicians, to a large extent, are just our followers, not leaders. We have a few that are really leading the charge for this. Two, on the debate stage running for president, champion Medicare for all. We all need to support them. But I think other politicians are beginning to catch on. We look at the voters in the first three states. 60% of those who voted said they support Medicare for All, knowing that it would mean the elimination of private insurance companies. They want to get rid of those guys. Right. And and I guess the big question is what happens to all the people who used to work in the health insurance companies? They can work for Medicare, right? A lot of them can work for Medicare. A lot of them can go back to to delivering patient care. There you go. There you go. Wendell, we're we're, we're out of time, but thank you so much for being with us. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wendell Potter, former health insurance executive president of businessformedicareforall.org. Check it out. You can tweet him at Wendell Potter. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's up? 
I think I'd like to give everybody a little bit of good news. We could use some de-stressing. Okay. The Social Security Administration is an extremely well-run federal program, and every month at the end of the month they do an accounting, and what I'd like everyone to know is as of the end of January of this year, there is $2.9 trillion in surplus sitting there over and above all the money they paid out to everyone on Social Security collecting it as income and everyone also collecting it for disability. It's the Social Security Income and Disability Trust Fund. And for the past several decades, it has gone one direction and one direction only, up and into surplus. Right. 13 months running, seven out of those 13 months, it's been in excess of $2.9 trillion. Sometimes it dips a little bit low, right. but what it's been doing is slowly edging up to $3 trillion in surplus. It's one of the largest sums of money in the world. Two things out of that, Paul, uh, that people need to understand. Number one, when you hear, you know, like the Pete Peterson Foundation, Pete Peterson was a Wall Street guy who made a billion dollars in Wall Street. He's got a foundation that is hysterical about the national debt. He has called for privatization of Social Security, or at least suggested that. When you hear these guys, these banksters and former banksters and politicians, the entire Republican Party who is funded by banksters, saying we need to privatize Social Security like Chile did under Pinochet. He had to throw 3,000 people out of helicopters to shut them up, but he did it. When you hear from them, what's really going on is these big banks want to get their hands on that $2.9 trillion. Exactly. And if they can skim a tenth of a percent off the top, they're in fat city and they can all double their bonuses and salaries. The other thing that people need to know is that prior to 1983, the I believe it was 83, the Social Security Trust Fund did not exist. Social Security did have a fund and people paid into Social Security while the people taking their money out of Social Security were taking money that had been paid in by the people currently living and working. What the Reagan administration did that was actually smart, you can give credit to Alan Greenspan and Oh, I forget who Tip is. Tip O'Neill. Yeah, Tip O'Neill, that's right, thank you. The Democratic Speaker of the House. They got together and they said, we're going to have this rabbit moving through the python here in about 20 years when the boomers start aging into Social Security. And that baby boom generation is going to be so large that the working class people will not be able to fund Social Security. So they double taxed the boomers. Well, they double taxed everybody starting in 83 or 84. They literally doubled the Social Security tax to create a trust fund that could handle that rabbit moving through the python and pay off all those larger than expected cost of the boomers. And then after the last of the boomers died about 20 years from now, they're expecting that Social Security trust fund to go away and Social Security will go back to funding itself the way it always had. So the reason I'm telling you this story, Paul, is because within a year or two or three, you're going to start hearing people on the right as part of their campaign to privatize Social Security so that, so that the bank who fund them can get their money on that Social Security Trust Fund, you're going to start hearing them saying, oh my God, the Social Security Trust Fund just went from $2.9 trillion to $2.7 trillion. It just went from $2.7 trillion to $2.5 trillion. The Social Security Trust Fund is going away. Oh my God, we've got to privatize this. <laughs> and it was designed to go away, right? It's a temporary fund where boomers doubled the payments that went into Social Security to pay for their own retirement. They're not only, the boomer generation not only paid for the retirement of their 
parents, but they also paid for their own generation. It was the first generation to be double taxed for Social Security. And most people don't realize that. And so when they hear about the Social Security Trust Fund, they think it's always been there and this is where all the money is. No, it's not. There's probably another trillion dollars that's just simply cycling through as money's coming in. That's the surplus is the 2.9 trillion. But whatever the budget is for Social Security every year, it's simply cycling through. Paul, thanks for the call. It was an excellent one. Mick in Seattle. Hey, Mick, what's up? Yeah, I'm the optimist and hopefully an idealist. It might come across this way. But I have some points to bring out about the virus being positive. First, it's going to teach all of us to collaborate and cooperate. Yes. That's my point. Number two, it's going to affect global warming by slowing us all down using fossil fuels. Already has. Yep. Yep. It's also going to hopefully help internal and external fighting. People can't fight when they're sick. And... Population reduction, as you pointed out, whether it's due to children not wanting to have kids or just the uh, passing away of us, both old and young. Yeah, the population part of it is the more distressing part. And I would add to your list of why this is not necessarily a good thing, but, you know, the small upsides that can be found in it is that Mm -hmm. it's going to cause Americans to realize that not having a national health care system is a public health disaster. Absolutely. We need to be explicitly saying that the lack of a national health care system is itself a public health crisis. It is a national security crisis. We need Medicare for all. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We need Medicare for all to protect us. We need it now. And instead, the Republicans are trying to blow up Obamacare. You know, it's shocking that your home can be stolen this easily. That's the brutal lesson Deborah learned when thieves found her home's title online, forged it, and literally took ownership of her home. In an instant, thieves legally owned Deborah's home. She got evicted and spent a fortune in legal fees trying to get it back. You know, the FBI calls home title fraud one of the fastest growing crimes, and you do not want to be next. That's why I urge you to protect the online title to your home with Home Title Lock. You know, the legal documents to our homes are kept online where thieves hunt them. They forge the documents stating you sold your home. Then they borrow against your home and stick you with the payments. And no insurance or bank protects you. Home Title Lock does. You could already be a victim of title fraud and not know it. Find out. Register your home at HomeTitleLock.com and enter WATCH for one month of free protection. Again, enter WATCH for one month free at HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. Jeremy in Woodland, California. Jeremy, you get the last 30 seconds of the show. What's up? The coronavirus is not only going to point out the need for national health care, like Medicare for All, but it also points out even more the inability of the current administration to prepare and protect the American public. Yeah, amen. Yeah, they, they, they didn't prepare or protect uh, Puerto Rico, for example, from Hurricane Maria, and then they failed, completely failed. Thousands of people died in Puerto Rico as a result of that because of the Trump administration's incompetence, and we're seeing that incompetence being repeated again right now. So pretty grim stuff. Anyhow, I hope you have a wonderful weekend and take a kind of take a break from politics. Go, you know, 
take a nice long walk and notice nature and enjoy yourself and, and uh, you know, pep yourself up. Thanks so much for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag your it, and tell your friends how to find good progressive media. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 